guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys. Now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. Hi friends, this is your host Melissa and welcome back to the Mimosa Sisterhood podcast where we celebrate the lives of women throughout history while we party hardy. And today is a very, very, very special episode for our podcast. In fact, it's a huge milestone for us since we launched this show back in 2018. So I'm really, really excited to tell you what this groundbreaking news is, but we're not going to get into it that quickly. So stay tuned. I'll tell you about it in a few minutes. But before we get started, I also just wanted to remind you guys some of the easiest and cheapest ways that you can support me and this podcast. So podcast reviews are literally like currency to a podcaster. The more love that we receive through ratings and reviews, will help make this show more attractive to other listeners. So in addition to that, it will also boost our chances of being featured on the front page of Apple Podcasts. So if you do have some time this week, be sure to rate and review and also share this podcast with a friend that loves women and wine. There is room for so many more people at this Mimosa Sisterhood table. So do not hesitate to spread the word. All right, well, let's get into it. I'm very excited to introduce our next guest. Please join me in welcoming Karen Rayner. She is the second half of the Chicklet podcast. You guys might remember I had Aubrey Summers on the podcast a few episodes ago. We covered Iris Apfel and Salinas Salinas. And today we have the other half of this awesome podcast joining to tell the story about one of her favorite women in history while we enjoy cocktails together long distance across the United States on a Sunday morning. So give it up for Karen Rayner. Hi, Karen. Hello. Hello. I'm so excited to be here finally. (laughs) I know. It's so funny because one, I feel like I already know you and... And two, we've had this planned for like a month, but leave it to me getting the plague. We had to postpone like a hundred times. So thank God it wasn't the actual plague. Dude, I know. Seriously. (laughs) And I got nervous for a minute thinking like, did I seriously get coronavirus? Like, how would that even happen? I've been trapped in my house for eight months. Um, Literally. Oh my God. Yeah. But thank God I didn't get it. I even got tested. And by the way, that test is a fucking disaster. It was so painful it felt like you inhale a spike into your brain um it was so bad I never want to do it again so did you have the single tear I had trillions of tears it honestly (laughs) felt like I had like the stick poked a gland and it just like in like released a gigantic waterfall of liquid Mm. from my eyes and it wasn't even like I was crying or needed to cry, it just was happening uncontrollably. And I had to, I did one of those drive through ones, so I mm. couldn't even actually, like, keep driving out of the drive through. I had to oh, pull no. over to the side and wait for my eyeballs to stop dripping. It was so weird. Oh, my God. <laughs> I... 
Well, I've everyone tells me that there's you you have to you cry because it's like it's up there with your tear ducts, I guess. And like I remember when I got my nose pierced, the piercer was like, "Okay, you're gonna have one single tear," and I was like, "No way!" And I was like, "I'm not gonna cry." And he was like, "You literally can't help it," and he did it. And of course, you know, one tear rolls down my face. He's like, "See, I told you." <laughs> well, if you do get a coronavirus test. It will be six trillion tears down your face. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I, you know, if and when I ever have to get tested, hopefully, hopefully never. But you know, it's not. I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> no, it's really bad. Um, but in less depressing news, <laughs> yes, your podcast. I know you guys are like wrapping up season one. Isn't that right? We technically wrapped season one. We are kind of in bonus land bonus episode territory right now um we're trying to figure out when we're going to start season two it's definitely going to be by the first of the year if not before well remind all the listeners what your podcast is about in case they have forgotten since aubrey was on here and pitched it yes so chick lit is a podcast where me and my best friend aubrey summers we read ya novels from when we were, you know, things that we read when we were growing up, things that other people read when they were growing up. Um, And we break it down chapter by chapter each each week while we enjoy a cocktail or a beer or usually not wine because Aubrey's not much of a wine person. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so that's that's the basic premise. And the first season was The Princess Diaries, book one, which one of my faves growing up and is absolutely like... I, I just I'm always just amazed by how Meg Cabot, the author, just absolutely captures the mind of a teenage girl. It's insane. Like I was reading some stuff, and it's like I I literally wrote this in my diary. Like how did she? I don't, I mean, you know, I guess because she was one at some point, but it's just it's so so many people try so hard to capture that mindset in you know screenwriting or plays or whatever and books, but it they just don't in the same way that it it just really connects with you through her writing. And so, like, this is your first go at podcasting. You guys just started this, like, not that long ago. Like, how has it been? How's the experience been for you guys? It's honestly, it's been so rewarding. Like, I told her, um, I told Aubrey after we kind of started releasing our episodes, I was like, this is, like, I feel like this is my calling. Like, I've been, I've always been one of those people that had so many, like, different, you know, hands in different fields. And I I never really knew like, oh, I'm good at this one really good thing. And I I was like, I feel I mean, maybe if I'm not even as good as I feel like I'm at, I am at it, like it's, it still feels like, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So hopefully, you know, I'm gonna be doing more of it in the future. And um, it's, it's, it just the overwhelming, like love and support from the podcast community has just been fantastic. I'm so thrilled by it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. I'm so stoked for you guys. And I may or may not be making an appearance on the Chicklet podcast sometime in the future. So hopefully, hopefully very soon. I know. Very excited about that. Well, (laughs) what what else is going on? Tell it like what else is happening in life? How have you been? Um, pretty good. I just got married. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I actually literally wanted to talk to you about that. I was going to yeah. ask you, like, how, like, okay, you got married. Fuck yes, first of all. But then, like, number two, holy shit. <laughs> like, yeah. what a freaking year to get married. Like, I can't oh imagine how many obstacles came up, like, str- additional stress you had to go through. Like, what is it like to get married in the year of the Rona? <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, so like, 
we got engaged in March of 2019, and we picked, we knew we wanted a really long engagement, much to our relative's chagrin, um, but we picked the date um, in, like, pretty much the same month we got engaged. We were like, 10-10-2020, that's when we're getting married, because, like, I love symmetry, and he loves numbers, and we were like, that's just the perfect anniversary date, like, and it's on a Saturday, like, how fortuitous, like, the stars are aligned, we're, like, very, we're very, like, celestial like Mm -hmm. the universe aligns things for you type Mm -hmm. of people so he was like he was like okay we're gonna do it and we had you know we had this venue picked we had this big you know I we were planning for like 120 people um which looking back on it was way too many people um and, (laughs) and then of course you know March comes around and it's like uh, well, shit, what are we going to do? And I, I got so depressed. Like, you know, I've been planning my wedding for, for over a year. And like, I, I just stopped. I just stopped everything. Cause I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. Everyone's telling me, oh, it's going to be fine by October. And I was like, uh, I don't really think that's how pandemics work, but you know, <laughs> and both of my parents are in public health. So like, I was very like from the start, I was like, I think this is here to stay guys. And so uh, around like June or so, we finally, I was like, okay, we have to make a decision. Are we getting married this year or not? And we both were like, we don't want to wait anymore. Like we, we just want to get married. Even if we have to do it over zoom, like we're going to do it. And so, you know, initially we're like, maybe we'll just elope, um, you know, depending on what the restrictions are. And of course we live in the Southeast. So I think the restrictions are a little bit more lax here than they are in other places. But so we threw out the big venue. We threw out most of the guest lists. I think we got it down to like 35 people, um, which is still a lot during a pandemic, but we got married outside um, as you know, socially distant as you can possibly be at a wedding. And uh, we rented a little downtown Airbnb in the town where we live and had a big backyard. So we just put up tents and lights and we got married. There was a hurricane on the day of. <laughs> what? And it rained all day. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Like, <laughs> so like a week, maybe like a week before the wedding, it's looking like it's going to be beautiful. And I was like, well, thank God. That's the one thing I don't have to worry about. Like, you know, I have to worry about making sure people wear masks and making sure people are like not hugging and dancing mm-hmm. or whatever. But like, at least the weather's going to be nice. And then Monday before it was on a Saturday. So like Monday before rolls around and they're like, oh, actually there's, I think it was hurricane. Hurricane Delta, because I, good God, how many are we up to now? Um, <laughs> Hurricane Delta was coming up through Louisiana and was going to be like parked over North Carolina, where I live, for like most of the day <laughs> on 10 10 2020. And I was like, well, isn't that just like my life? And it was, it was nice. It didn't rain during the ceremony until. I think we had just finished our vows and we were <laughs> we were doing the rings, which of course you have to be like next to each other for that. We had tents set up on either side, but we weren't under a tent. And um, we uh, were doing the ring exchange and it really started to come down. And my photographer, who, by the way, I'm going to plug her. Her name is Rose Bowman. She's on, she's on Instagram. Follow her. At, I think it's uh, Rose Bowman Photography or The Rose Bowman She's fantastic. She came in clutch. She had these cute little clear umbrellas that she ran up to this altar with and was like, here you go. And we got married with the rest of the ceremony under these cute little umbrellas. Aww. And all of my all of my wedding photos have us like walking down the aisle with the umbrellas. I forgot to get my bouquet back from Aubrey. Like, 
it was oh so God. it was it was so us though because like we're just like not we're not like formal people we're very much just like whatever fuck yeah mm-hmm. like you know and and then it rained like pretty much the rest of the day like poured rain but luckily the rest of the everything was under the tent so it didn't really matter but <laughs> that is so crazy like yeah <laughs> Yeah, so I got married during a pandemic and a hurricane. Oh my god! Well, hey, that was what the universe called for, so I guess that's it what was. you guys had to accept that day. <laughs> it was, and it was it was a beautiful wedding, and I honestly, like, the people that were able to be there, um, it was just such a great, like, group, and everybody really pitched in and made it really beautiful for us, and, like, I can... I. I can't be more grateful to, like, everybody that helped us. Yeah, and you know what else, too? Like, when I think about huge weddings, I feel like... I mean, I've never been married, so I can't actually speak from experience, but I would imagine that, like not only would it be a little overwhelming, but you wouldn't really be able to, like, actually interact or experience everybody at your wedding. Like, you wouldn't really be able to get around and, like, communicate and say thank you and, like, just share those moments with the people that were there at your wedding. But when it's smaller and a little bit more personable, I feel like you're, like, in, you're there and you're experiencing it and you're in the moment. It's not like you're this lady on a stage and there's, like, this audience, you know? It's more, it's more face-to-face and interactive. And I imagine, like, the memories that you have are a little bit more genuine than just kind of being like, holy shit, like there's so much going on and so much happening around me even though we didn't have the big wedding like I it still went by so fast like I I understand I really wanted we wanted to DIY the wedding like from the beginning like even when we were going to have the big one we were like we're going to do you know all the decorations ourselves and everything um and in order to save money because I had let's see I ended up we ended up having a wedding party of like 12 people (laughs) which was crazy it was so many people um to save money on flowers, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make, I, I bought the flowers from like a flower farm, except for my bouquet and my crown, every, everything else was DIY. And so like, I was like, I'm going to make the flowers. So the day before I'm like freaking out, like <laughs> putting Aubrey and I are like trying to learn how to arrange flowers, which I think we did a pretty good job. They turned out cute, but like, you know, I'm, I'm freaking out drinking beer at like 10 o'clock in the morning and like <laughs> putting together these bouquets. And I'm like, I understand why people just want to, like, hire a J-Lo and, like, and just, like, have one person do everything and, like, make sure that every... So they can just sit back and do whatever yeah, they want for, like, totally. the two days before. And I I wouldn't trade it for the world. It, it really meant a lot to do that, but it was very, very stressful. <laughs> yeah. But also, like, what a funny... I mean, especially, like, years and years and years down the line with kids and grandkids and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like, what a hilarious story to tell people. Just, we got married during a pandemic on the day of a hurricane, and look how far we've come, kids. It's been a great life. <laughs> yeah. It, so, I guess one other thing. We got our – we had to overnight our marriage license so that it would be there in time, and we got the license – um, and it was not our license. It was someone else's marriage license, like the what? night before the wedding. Yeah. The ROD, Register of Deeds, sent us the wrong marriage license. Um, oh, we didn't tell, God. I mean, I told a few people, but like, we didn't tell anybody. Cause I was like, at the end of the day, we're saying our vows. That's all that really matters. And then the night we got home from the wedding, they had actually mailed our license and we're like, oh my God, so sorry. It was a mistake. But I was like, the whole day, everyone was calling me by the wrong name. Cause it was like the name that was on... <laughs> other marriage no so I was just like of course I'm like it's raining there's a pandemic going on we didn't even get the right marriage license what are we doing (laughs) (laughs) it was so bad (laughs) oh my 
my god well yeah. you know what you guys looked absolutely beautiful <laughs> stunning thank you. and thank now you. you're married to your the the soulmate of your life so you know what Sh- shit all. happens but at the end of the day it turns out exactly as it should <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And I guess I'll go ahead. Sorry, I'm I'm on this podcast, so I'm plugging everybody. Do it. Um, I'm I'm gonna plug my husband's Twitch stream. <laughs> okay, well, what is what the hell is Twitch? Because I keep hearing about this, and sure. I have no clue what it is. And that either means I'm six thousand years old, or I'm just like <laughs> I'm not cool enough. Like I don't know what's going on. No, you're fine. I I wouldn't know about it if it weren't for like all the gamers in my life, because I'm not, like, a video gamer. I'm more of a tabletop person. Like, I play D&D and Magic the Gathering and all that stuff. But I don't really play video games that much. But it's, uh, essentially, it is a streaming platform where people, not not a streaming platform like Netflix, but it's famous gamers uh, will get on, like, certain times a week, and people can actually watch them live stream them playing games and interact with them through chat. And you can, like, subscribe to, like, support them and all that stuff, and or just follow them just so you know when they're streaming. So he recently started streaming. Um, he doesn't have, like, a set game that he plays, but every Saturday he plays Final Fantasy with his best friend Andrew. And uh, they, they just kind of cut up and have a good time. And, you know, it's very similar to a podcast, but it's, like, visual, and everyone can interact with you. It's kind of cool. So he... Mostly streams Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and his uh, Twitch handle is Cooper K O O P E R I R L. So tune in <laughs> if you feel like it. So my, I actually am cracking up because since coronavirus has like been mm-hmm. in full swing, my boyfriend now plays video games all the fucking time, which yes. he never did the entire length of our relationship before coronavirus <laughs> existed. <laughs> Um, so you're like, I did not sign up for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's actually hilarious to me because I feel like my boyfriend would really like Twitch because yeah. in his off time, when he's not playing the video game, he's watching them on YouTube. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. And like, I'm I got into... by it. I'm like, you're literally sitting here watching a guy play video games on YouTube. He's like, yeah, I'm learning all these new things and I'm getting better at the game because like I'm watching these pros do it and this and that. Yeah. And I'm like, I had no idea that shit got this serious in the gaming world. And so this has just very recently been introduced to both of our lives. So, you oh, know, girl, what? we, we might so be serious. live twitching by the end of the year. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you should. You should do that. They can they can um they can promote each other's streams. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's so I funny. Twenty twenty, it. dude, this is where we're at now. It's crazy. Life's so it's true. life's so crazy. It really is. It really is. But you know what? I feel like this is a perfect transition because I have some really great news and I feel like you're going to be very excited. And I cannot wait to hear. I am very excited because like I said in the intro, this is a huge milestone for my podcast. And I just feel really proud to announce that at the end of this episode, we will have covered 100 women on the show. So you and I are covering number 99 and number 100. Oh my god! (laughs) That is... What? I didn't even know that. That's so cool. Isn't that wild? I'm so honored to be your 
on your 100th woman episode. I know. So since 2018, we have researched and told stories about 100 women in history and how they have better impacted society, women in general, and helped women in the future have like a paved way for them to live a better life. And so I'm fucking freaking out about it. I literally just pulled this together like a week ago and I was like, oh my God, it's 100. <laughs> this is so That's exciting. So, wild. so yeah, so with that super huge, gigantic milestone, I'm of course celebrating on this episode with some motherfucking mimosas. Yes. Which I very, I very rarely drink it. on this show, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> Yes, but I have a <laughs> bottle of Cool Bell. I have a big giant thing Ooh. of Tropicana orange juice. And yes. I am about three mimosas deep. And I am very excited. And I'm just super blown away. And I feel like this is just the perfect time to give a huge thank you to everybody who has been listening to this podcast since 2018, who have enjoyed all of the stories that they've heard on this show and hopefully have felt you know, more inspiration in their own lives, just hearing all these incredible stories of women that came before us, and even just women who have been living alongside us today who are making huge impacts. And often some of those huge impacts come with a lot of hardship and obstacles and mistakes. Like, just because we cover a Women in History you know, podcast doesn't mean that every woman on this show is a perfect, ideal citizen in society. Often they aren't. They're very complicated. They go through shit. They don't mm. always make the right choices. And I think that is exactly what is organic to human nature. And I think it's something that we should feel prideful about. And so this podcast isn't here to say, hey, these are perfect human beings and that's why we are celebrating them. It's saying, hey, you know, the female experience is very unique. It's very diverse. It's very special. And we should celebrate what that experience looks like. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the bubbly. So yes, girl, I'm giving you snaps for that. Love so yeah, that. I'm super excited. Today is 100 women. Thank you to everybody who has been listening along the journey. I'm so excited. And Karen, I'm so stoked that you are here doing it with me. And I can't wait to talk about ladies. Yes, let's talk about some ladies. Okay, well, first, though, since that was my huge wine review, um, what are you, are you drinking? Oh, what yes. are you drinking? I... <laughs> So I am drinking, this is, this is, um, this is my, my life. Uh, I'm drinking Rex Goliath Chardonnay because, you know, I was, um, at the gas station last night and it looked good. Um, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) gas station wine is where it's at. So this gas station wine, Rex Goliath, our Chardonnay is like enjoying a day at a tropical beach, bright and sunny with aromas of pineapple and citrus. I don't really think I'm getting that, but it's. I mean, it was $6, and I, it's it's Chardonnay. Chardonnay's oaky. I like Chardonnay. I'm more of a Pinot Gris girl, usually. Mm-hmm. But when my when my best friends and I are together, what we always drink is Rex Goliath Chardonnay, because we know what we're about. And <laughs> it's the type of wine where you know what you're about. Yeah, this is new to me. So it's like there's a rooster on the front. I'm sure, like, somebody's probably seen it that's listening. Uh, I just looked it up. Yes, yeah, so there, it's Rex Goliath is, 
I think I think it's supposed to be like British, but I don't. His Royal Majesty Rex Goliath was a treasured circus attraction. Oh, okay, okay. He was like a huge rooster that toured the country, <laughs> and his name was Rex Goliath, and he was forty-seven pounds. <laughs> and that's that's what this winery decided to make their mascot. <laughs> That is freaking hysterical. I love it. So fat ass rooster wine. Hey, I will say, even though it's gas station wine, still a real cork. Very surprising. <laughs> well, hell yeah. I'm stoked on that. We don't often have <laughs> Chardonnay on the show, but you know what? We are always welcoming new Chardonnay Rex, and I am going to hunt this Rex Goliath down because I love me a good fat turkey or, or chicken or rooster or whatever yes. he is. <laughs> Good old fat rooster. I will say my favorite Chardonnay is usually what I get is um, Chateau Saint Michel. That's my favorite, like cheap Chardonnay. Nice. Um, but you know, if I'm if I'm at a gas station and I'm feeling some six dollar bottle of wine, that's what I'm gonna get. I love it. <laughs> okay, well, I am going to kick it off with a bang on our 100 women episode, and Yay! I have a woman who is just absolutely remarkable and. Well, typically I'm obsessed with every woman that I cover on the show, but <laughs> this woman I had never heard about. I learned about her in one of my my books that I have, and I then watched a quick um, like little PBS video on her life, and I was just like, holy shit, this is a woman that I don't think you learn about in the history books when we're children in school. And I think that she absolutely needs to be celebrated and her name needs to be known in in history. So super excited to introduce you guys today to a woman whose name was Noor Inyat Khan. And she was an Indian princess who became a spy in World War II to help bring down the Nazis. What? <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. No, that's crazy. Yeah. So I've never heard of her at all. Um, but in terms of World War II, she's like one of three women that received some very unique honors for the work that they did in bringing down the Nazis. And I mean, I know she was an American, but you just would think that when you're learning about World War II and what a huge impact that had on the entire world, that this woman's name would have been mentioned at some point. So (laughs) um, I'm going to talk about her today. Okay, cool. I'm so excited. So Noor was born on January 1st, 1914 in Moscow, Russia. And her father was named Inyat Khan, and he actually had descended from a family of Indian Muslim royalty that was very closely related to Tipu Sultan, which was like a very famous ruler of the Kingdom of Mysore. And so they were pretty much a family of royalty during this time period. And her mother, Pirani, was actually an American who was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And she had met her husband while he was traveling in the United States. And like against her family's wishes, she basically fled and married him. So (laughs) 
Um, oh my god. Yeah, Love it. so Love it. they're already off to a great start, and by the time Noor was born, <laughs> her family had settled in Europe because her father was living as a musician and a teacher of Islamic mysticism, which was known as Sulfism. So he was like a very oh, high-ranking leader in this like Islamic mystic religious world. Very well-known, huh. very popular, very prestigious and well-respected and super sad. Her father ended up dying when she was only 13 years old and she had to take oh, no. on the responsibility of her younger siblings because her mom went into like a super, super deep, dark depression that lasted for many years. Um, but one thing mm. that Noor kept, which was like one of her father's principles was that he was a pacifist, obviously due to his like religion and his moral code. But Noor carried on this love and respect for being a pacifist in her own life, which is very ironic because later down the line she gets involved with bringing down the Nazis. So <laughs> we'll, we'll oh get God. back to that part later, but. As a young girl, Noor was described as quiet, shy, sensitive, and dreamy, and she studied child psychology and music, and she actually was a really, really, really incredible harp player. Like, the harp was one of her biggest passions, and she probably could have gone on and become, like, a very, very famous harp player if her life had gone, taken that route. Um, but she also had a career in writing poetry, or at least she was kickstarting it in her early 20s, and she also wrote children's stories. And she became a very regular contributor to a children's magazine, and she did French radio. So she was very artsy-fartsy when she was in her 20s, and then in 1939, at 25 years old, she published her very first book. It was called 20 Jakarta Tales, and it was inspired by the Jakarta Tales of Buddhist Tradition. And that was published in France, Britain, and America. So it was a great book and it was very popular it, to the point that it would have made it all the way to America. So she was very talented and she probably would have had a very, very fantastic life in the arts, but that was brought to a halt once the Second World War took place. So when that, when the Second World War sort of outbroke and shit hit the fan, her family, along with many other refugees, had to flee their home in Paris. So they went west and they arrived to Bordeaux. And in Bordeaux, they were able to get on the very last boat of British refugees. And they fled across sea to England and arrived on June 22nd in 1940. And so already I was just like thinking about that. But just think of being like 25 years old and one day being like, holy shit, we have to flee our home and jump on a refugee boat to a different country or else we might be murdered. Like, oh my God, what the fuck is that? I can't fathom that happening to me at that age. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. So, so just, I don't know. I'm always just blown away by any story that I hear of anybody during this time period because it's just unfathomable and... I just, it blows me away just what our world has gone through in different periods of time. Yeah. But So they flew to England or fled to England. And when they arrived there, her and her brother were like, 
instantly inspired to do action. So even though they were very, very deeply influenced by pacifist ideals, they also felt this like deep desire to help because they hated the fucking Nazis. And they were just disgusted by what was happening. And they personally felt like they couldn't live with themselves if they didn't contribute or volunteer in some type of way to take them down. So Mm. she was quoted to say, I wish some Indians would win high military distinction in this war. If one or two could do something in the Allied service, which was very brave and which everybody admired, it would help to make a bridge between the English people and the Indians. So I guess at this time there was like a little bit of tension between England and India. And they had obviously just arrived there. More than normal. Yeah, more than normal. And (laughs) they had just arrived there. (laughs) And they're, I guess, you know, they were refugees and they... They were thankful that they were there and they were safe, but they also wanted to be accepted. And I think they felt that if they had, you know, some type of involvement in this war, then it would help kind of bridge that gap of tension that was taking place. Mm. And so in 1940, at the age of 26, Noor joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force and she was trained as a radio operator. And so two years later, she was approached by the Special Operations Executive, which was a British spy organization during the war, and she was assigned to the sections that were related to France. And so she had really fantastic Morse code skills that she had learned while she was in the Air Force, and that made her a really ideal candidate for wireless operator with the SOE because they were going to have her encrypt messages back to London. And this was a really, really dangerous role in the SOE, and she was the very, very first woman to be deployed to this kind of role. So a little bit of back history. So cool. Yeah, super cool. Um, But yeah, so a little bit of back history. The Second World War started when Germany invaded France and most of Europe. And that actually went on for two years before the Americans stepped in to help. So Britain was on their own for a very, very long time. And they were pretty outnumbered. And Winston Churchill, who had been known to be like... He would, I, I, I don't know a shitload about him. I should probably tune up on my history. But from what I read in this story, he was known to, um, I guess, kickstart a lot of really unconventional war plans. And he was a little bit, mm. he didn't like follow the grain. He kind of took things like on his own path and tried new stuff and things that were often considered like, scandalous and not the norm and so one of these things that he launched Mm. was this uh soe program and so uh, it which was the special operations executive and he felt that this was one of the only ways that they could fight back against germany without having like major ally help at that time and so the mission of soe Mm. was not just about gathering intelligence but it also included just wreaking absolute havoc in the occupied areas of europe so a lot of the members of this group were hired specifically to destroy things so they would blow up trains boats canals and railroads roads where the germans were located as just like a means of saying like hey you know we're the resistance and we're gonna fuck your shit up so that you can't operate as well (laughs) 
Um, and it also was like sort of a uh, like them raising a flag saying like to collect other people that were interested in the resistance. So they mm. were, you know, they had people like Noor who were collecting uh, intelligence and also sending messages, but they also had people just blowing things up. Um, so it was it was and that was, I guess, not very normal at the time. People thought he was crazy for even having a program like this. But anyway, she was recruited into this program. And um, oh, one other thing I forgot to mention was that this group, the SOE group, was sort of a alternative method that allowed people the opportunity to fight against the Nazis who weren't like directly related to the military. And so it was a way for other people like Noor to volunteer to help out, but it was also a way for women to help out. So at this time, men were very few and far in between since they were all fighting in war. And Winston Churchill was like, shit, we're running low on men. We're going to have to start recruiting some women because we're running out of people. <laughs> and there were women that wanted to participate. There were women like Noor who were like, fuck yeah, we're here for it. So it was just a great way for oh, yeah. everybody to fight together and be one against this horrendous Nazi group. So Noor went through three months of intensive training with the SOE, but she did not have a natural talent for espionage, and she failed to impress everybody in her training groups. Her instructors oh, no. described her as emotional, clumsy, easily flustered, and scared of weapons, but her superiors couldn't help but notice like her selfless dedication to her training. So somehow, she, like even though she sucked at what she was doing, they were just like, this lady has heart and passion, and we just, we believe in her. So during her training, she was... So taught to survive in enemy territory, how to use weapons and explosives, and how to resist interrogation and torture. So that is so oh fucking heavy. 26 years old. Like, how... And you're a pacifist. Like, how yeah, crazy right? is this? Oh, my God. So people in her training group found her to be a total mystery. She was young, she was really, really small, and she was a woman with a Muslim name who was training to become a special agent. And regardless of her failings in espionage, she was selected for a very dangerous mission because she had incredible wireless operating skills that she had learned in the Air Force, and they were far better than anybody else in her training group. And France was in desperate need for wireless operators. So in June 1943, Noor, along with a few other agents, were secretly flown into an isolated field in France where they were met by Henry de... I can't remember his last name. Henry de Court. <laughs> he was a French SOE agent, but without her knowledge, he was also a double agent. So he was... <gasps> like operating on both sides basically so she didn't know that nobody else fucking knew that he was just this <laughs> dick who was playing both sides of the field and couldn't totally be trusted whoa so the minute that she got on that plane she was already in danger um but sh but this henry dude he didn't betray her at this point in time um but he also didn't take any 
particular steps to ensure that she or any of the other agents on that plane would be safe when they arrived. So when they got there, shit wow. like already started to kind of hit the fan and there was like sketchy vibes. And somehow Noor was able to <sighs> escape completely untraced. So she like hightailed it out of there and made her way to Paris and was fine. But like the minute that they got there, it was kind of already like, danger was in their face and they could feel it and they knew that things weren't right so they had a snitch oh yeah they knew that they had a snitch and they knew that (laughs) shit was not already going well the minute that they hit ground oh my god so so scary like i just i don't even know so scary um so when she got to Paris, well, in general, her her secret agent, like, code name was Madeleine, but her secret identity in Paris was Jean-Marie Rainier, and she was considered a French children's nurse, so she was literally living as a full different person. And her job <laughs> is described as the principal and most dangerous post in France. So she was assigned to work in a sub circuit led by Emile Gary in Paris as a radio operator for the Proper Network, which was the largest and most important SOE group in France. And the craziest thing about radio operator roles in the SOE was that they could not stay in one location for long due to the likelihood of being discovered, but also moving around too quickly and too often was very risky because they were easily noticed, like, they were easily noticed by others due to their large equipment. Like, they often were carrying, like, Mm. big briefcases because it had all of their radio equipment (laughs) inside of it. So... You know, in a time when you're walking around occupied France and you have all this huge baggage that you're just carrying around all the time, a Nazi could look at that person and say, like, that's suspicious, you know? So it was right. really dangerous. And it was considered that anybody in this type of position with the SOE would not survive longer than six weeks before being captured. (laughs) Holy shit. So when they brought people, that's that's not some good odds. No. And they knew this. So like when Noor accepted this job, she knew that she maybe had at best six weeks to do her job and, help the resistance but that she was basically going to be captured and that's fucking crazy i just got goosebumps right that's insane yeah so within weeks the betrayal of that double agent um he came back and stroke struck again and so that led to the gestapo and uh finding her fellow agents in paris and they were captured noor was not with them at this time so she was the only remaining operator in that city that avoided being captured everyone else in her group was caught by the nazis so oh my god she like just keeps getting away every time yeah so she, in that, once this happened, her people who were like back in England or in France, they contacted her and were like, hey, shit obviously went sour. We can pull you from the field and bring you back home. Like, you're out there by yourself. This is not good. And she insisted on staying, stating that she was going to complete her mission, whether she had her group or if she was alone. 
So she straight did not give wow. a fuck. Like she knew that like <laughs> she knew. She knew I I I chose this path in life and I'm going to live it out. I could go home right now and be safe, but I'm not going to because I'm I, I'm willing to risk my what? life basically. So yeah. That's some conviction. Yeah. Um she was she was extremely brave. But because all of her other peers were captured, the Germans were able to obviously look at all of their operating equipment. They were able to start deciphering like what these SOE agents were doing. And they were able to determine that like, say that there were like 12 SOE agents who were sent to France. They had 11 of them and they could see that 11 operating systems were now out of service, but there was one that wasn't. So they knew that there was a person that they'd missed. They didn't know who it was, but they knew that person was out there on the streets and they were able to pick up the wireless from that machine. But because she was constantly moving, they couldn't track, like they couldn't find her. So they were able to like track where she was at, but then like two hours later, she wouldn't be there. So she was pretty much, like, on the run. Mm. And they were able to, like, know that she's here and she's working, but they just could never get to her. So she used every technique possible from changing her looks to changing her location. And every chance that she got, she was moving and the Nazis weren't able to get to her. And people, historians, believe that the reason why she was so successful in avoiding them was honestly a mixture of just pure luck and the fact that she was so quick-witted. So it wasn't even like, wow. like, the, like it doesn't almost make sense why she was able to avoid capture for so long. Like no one knows. <laughs> They're just like, she was really wow. fucking lucky. And I guess she was really smart and like fate was on her side. Like that was pretty much it. And so Holy shit. At this time, she was handling by herself all of the spy radio traffic that would normally be handled by an entire team. She was doing it alone. Holy shit. All while avoiding capture from a team of Nazis who were tracking her. (laughs) Oh my god. I thought I was overwhelmed at my job, but holy shit. Yes. So uh, (laughs) at this point, she had now outlived the life expectancy of an SOE wireless operator by over like twice the amount of time that they had believed. So I think it was like six weeks they had to live. So she was now at like 12 weeks and was still alive. And so she was like, oh, my God, literally breaking all odds. But she also knew that like it was really only a matter of time. And so at one point, like, while she was in Paris, you know, she was from Paris. She wasn't from Paris. She was from Moscow, Russia, but they moved to Paris and lived Mm. there for a very long time. And it was in Paris where the majority of her childhood was lived in their family home. And so now she's back in Paris, like, on the run, hiding out from Nazis, doing all this spy shit. And, you know, she's being tracked and she knows that, like, it's only a matter of time. And so... She decides to go back and visit her her family home. 
and she's able to like post up at like a, a safe house near her family home and she reconnects with a family friend which is something you are not allowed to do like it's completely 1000 mm. percent against the rules because you're an active secret spy and anything that could reveal your true identity is dangerous not mm. only to you but the mission but she was tripping balls. Yeah. She was there by herself. Her whole team was gone. And she, like, <laughs> really needed to ground herself. And I think going back and seeing her, her roots, her home, remembering her father, remembering her family, you know, seeing that pacifist home that they had lived in, where she'd played her harp, where she'd written all of her books. Like, it was the strength and, like, what she had needed to just keep going. And... um that's what she did and nothing bad happened but it's just an interesting part of her story where you know uh, she did something that she was told she couldn't do but i think it was really what she needed for herself to just keep staying strong and so i kind of love that about her that like while she was on this crazy journey she also went against the grain and you know sought love and support through whichever family member was still remaining in that town and just trying to like rebuild herself because she knew that there was a lot 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 that was still ahead of her and so more weeks went by and like life was still going and she was still spying and then she was caught and so the worst thing is that she didn't she wasn't caught because she got caught she never got caught. I don't know how long this girl would have gone on being a spy and running from the Nazis without getting caught if it wasn't for a little motherfucking bitch that betrayed her. So. Wow. She was literally thrown to the curb by a woman who was named Renee Gary, and she was the sister of Noor's agent her supervising boss and this woman was like i guess she was figured out to be related to a head of the soe and so the nazis paid her off with 100,000 french francs but at the same time this fucking lady renee gary didn't like noor she was jealous of her she was intimidated by her because one of this like another SOE agent named I think his name was France Antelem. He was like in love with Noor. They didn't have like even a relationship mm. as far as people know, but he was just like always preaching, you know, her praises, talking about her. And I guess this bitch was like in cahoots with that dude. And so she had like a fucking oh stick up her ass about Noor. And the minute that the Nazis came to her and offered her money and she's like, Oh, absolutely. I'd love to throw this bitch under the rug. So that is some high stakes jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. So she literally ratted her out and caused her to be captured and arrested by the Nazis. So we can all just take a moment to tell (laughs) Renee Gary to go fuck herself. (laughs) Ain't that just like a bitch. Like, insane. Like, you know, especially, I would hate to be the woman who's remembered as the person that (laughs) really fucked up Noor and all that she was accomplishing for World War II. Like, you are a bad person if that is the role that you played in World War II. (sighs) 
I'm going to be tweeting about this for like the next three years. That's crazy. <laughs> um, okay, so then Noor was arrested. She was imprisoned in uh, 1943. And although she consistently lied to investigators, she even attempted to escape twice. But her, oh my God. the shitty thing is, remember how I was telling you that she like was not good at espionage? Like, her people were like, mm. you're clumsy, you're this, you're that, you're not actually good at being a spy, you're just like a really great like wireless operator, you're fantastic at digital <laughs> communication, but like all that other you stuff, yeah, you're like not that great at it. Well, that kind of came to bite her in the ass because when she was captured, the Nazis were able to, like, find all of her notebooks and all of her in-person, like, information (gasps) where they could prove that she was a spy. And they also knew what they needed to do to uh, impersonate her. So they were able to use her wireless operating, like, material or machinery (gasps) and continued to pretend to be her. So they were communicating with people in the London headquarters, and London headquarters thought it was Noor, and it wasn't. So it was not good. And that resulted in the captures and deaths of many more SOE agents who they were able to find because they were impersonating Noor. And um, it it was a bad situation. And so Noor attempted to escape once more along with two other prisoners and she was really good at this like she would literally get out of jail cells and be like climbing up walls onto rooftops like she was like not just attempting to escape she was escaping out on the streets and then they were able (laughs) to like chase her down and get her back so she was not going down easy and um the her final escape she was caught and then she, they were like, you know what? We're fucking over your shit. You're like, you're, we're not going to let you escape anymore. And so they took her to Germany and they kept her in solitary confinement for the next 10 months where she was tortured for information, oh but God. revealed nothing. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. So eventually Whoa. in 1944, she was transferred to Dachau, which was a concentration camp. And she was executed on September 13th, 1944, when she was shot dead execution style. And her final words were liberté, which was French for freedom. Oh, my God. I'm going to cry. I know. Like, I'm literally tearing up right now. Wild. And so posthumously, Noor was awarded multiple honors for her work and for her bravery. And in 1949, she was awarded the George Cross, which was the second highest British honor for bravery, as well as the French Crew de Guru with a silver star, which was one of the only three awards given to women during World War II. So three women in World War II got this award, and she was one of them. And her story endured in popular culture. And in 2011, there was a campaign that raised funds for a bronze bust of Noor in London near her former home. And her legacy lives on as a groundbreaking heroine and as a spy who refused to abandon her post, even in the most unprecedented demand and danger. And then in 2012, her memorial in London became the very first dedicated to an Asian woman in Britain. And that is a really intense wow. story. <laughs> Holy shit. That's, that's fucking crazy. Like, I, 
it's always those types of stories that like don't it's like why is this not like front and center when you're learning about world war ii like right that's what i'm saying that's crazy and i mean like just even the fact that she was an indian muslim who lived her life off of being a pacifist and her family was indian royalty and they were like hugely associated to this like mysticism of sulfism and like the fact that you know regardless of all of her life preachings and beliefs she had to accept the fact that there was a war happening and she had to participate in it and you know she never murdered anybody she never killed anybody but she participated in this war and continued to live as a pacifist but using her skill set and her body and her brain to fight in the way that she was able to while also living in truth to her religion and i think that is so incredible that's so wild i i I can't wait to, like, tell everybody I know about this story. That's so crazy. <laughs> Isn't it so crazy? I, honestly, I love that, like, she was not your your typical spy, where it's, like, you know, your stone-cold, like, James Bond or whatever. When you, like, that's so interesting to me, like, to see stories like that, where, like, what'd you say? She was, like, very small, and she didn't have your typical like spy oh yeah type of oh yeah demeanor yeah she was like beautiful she was really tiny she was very young she was an like an indian muslim and she was a pacifist and she behaved that way and the fact that she was very emotional and she was afraid of weapons and she got really worked up when they were training her but she was literally in a (laughs) training camp to be a special agent like how foreign and out of control is that for her i just that's so couldn't imagine um but she made a huge mark on the people that were with her to the point where like she was very memorable because she wasn't like everybody else who was in that training camp she stood out like a sore thumb not only in like her demographic but her very like passive personality type so people are like what the hell is this girl doing here but all of her superiors were like no she's exactly what we need probably because she wouldn't be suspecting because she is so different and because she's she was smarter than she was aggressive so it's like she might have not been the person who's gonna you know stab a dude through the throat but she she was you know she was she was tortured for 10 months and never said a word and I think, that's, like, that's insane. That that's what they saw in her, and that's how they knew that she would be a great spy. Sometimes I like I think about that, where I'm like, if I was ever in that, God forbid, I'm ever in that situation. It's like I I don't think I could last more than like five minutes. I would be. <laughs> It would be, like, the worst thing ever. I totally agree. I'd be the worst spy. I know. And I, I think, too, though, like, having, because she was such a spiritual person and because, like, you know, she loved her father so much and he was such a, like, a mystic kind of guy, I think that she probably was raised to think, like, you know, spirit over body. And so I think in those situations, um, people that, you know, do like believe in like a higher up, whatever that might be, they are somehow able to detach from the physical and just know that like 
whatever is happening in the spiritual is worth like whatever torture is happening in the physical which fuck dude i mean i don't have that kind of strength or power or (laughs) attachment to any higher being but in shit like this i'm like fuck maybe i should (laughs) like you know yeah really though really though holy shit that is the story of noor she's an unbelievable indian princess who became a world war ii spy and fuck dude that description alone is just remarkable so shout out to her woman number 99 on the mimosa sisterhood podcast that's it that's an incredible story yay (sighs) crazy heavy but like so needed i just those these women and their stories just give me so much life i just feel like grateful to even know the story i feel like i'm like a better person now (laughs) seriously seriously (laughs) Well, I wanted to talk about a woman that I have just been obsessed with, like, for most of my life. I learned, I, well, I mean, I, you learn about her in school, but, like, I learned, I first got interested in her because of seeing the movie Elizabeth the Golden Age when I was a kid, um, or a teenager, I guess, and that movie is not entirely historically accurate, but it was enough to get me interested. I am also, on my mom's side, we're, like, very, very Scots-Irish, so there's, like, a personal connection there. And so I'm going to be talking about Mary, Queen of Scots today. Woohoo! You know, she's actually been on, she's been requested many times um oh yeah and I haven't covered her yet she'd been on my list so I'm very excited that you're covering her today I I love talking about her it's honestly I think that learning about her story sort of like kicked off my interest in politics at a very young age so I um I have kind of a personal connection I my mom's side of the family is supposed to be directly descended or like sort of directly descended from King Robert the Bruce of Scotland, uh, which is, like, the guy in Braveheart and stuff. Whoa! Um, which, yeah, <laughs> I tried to get my mom's, I, I tried to get my mom to, like, send me pictures of the document, because I know I've seen it, but she said she couldn't find it, and then I asked my sister, and then she said she couldn't find it, and then she was like, well, you know a lot of those, like, a lot of the immigrant families from Scotland said that about themselves and just wrote it down, but, like, it's not actually true. So it kind of burst my bubble a little bit, but there is a slight, slight chance that I could be related to Robert the Bruce, which would give me a slight relation to Mary, Queen of Scots. But, you know, Scotland's such a small country that everybody probably is, so right. it's fine. <laughs> we'll take it. Um, yeah, I'll take it. Um, so I've always really admired her. I, I guess I was just going to talk about, like, a couple of things that I love about her and then I'll like launch into her life. I've always really admired her because she is often juxtaposed in history with her cousin, fun fact, Elizabeth I of England, Queen Elizabeth, like the Queen Elizabeth before the one that we have now. And, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth was very like, she didn't marry. She was the virgin queen. Probably not. But, you know, she said that. And she was, like, always put country above her own interests. But what I love about Mary is that she sort of did the opposite. <laughs> she was a very, very passionate person. And she she loved being in love. And I think it was ultimately her downfall. But I think she really, like, lived her life to, like, do whatever she wanted. Which, you know 
in some ways can be bad, but <laughs> so I, and also final fun fact, I once dressed up as her for a karaoke musical. <laughs> yes. I love it. Where, it, yes, a, a, the, the premise essentially was like, they sent everyone, they're like, pick a, a figure that you want to dress up as. And then the song that you're going to sing, and we're going to write a musical based on like all these random. So it was like this random collection of like historical figures. And it was like people traveling through time and like singing songs. So anyway, so I did that. I can, I'll have to like post a picture of that or something on my Twitter. That is hilarious. <laughs> fun, fun stuff. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the first thing that I want to get out of the way before I like launch into her story is that there's this huge misconception out there that she is Bloody Mary. And that is not true. Bloody Mary was actually Queen Elizabeth I's sister or stepsister, half sister, um, who had a very short Catholic reign between the time that um, Henry VIII, their father, died and Elizabeth took the throne uh, because she was trying to force this nation that had just been converted to being Protestant to back to being Catholic and she was killing a lot of people and it was a, a really bad time. So anyway, that was Bloody Mary. But Mary, Queen of Scots, she was born December 8th, 1542, uh, to James V of Scotland and Mary of Geese, who was his French wife. And James V actually died a week after Mary was born, which made her queen. Um, so she was a baby queen. And <laughs> That's such a weird thing, isn't it? It is. Monarchy is so strange, but I find it so fascinating. So her mom, Mary of Geese, uh, played a large role in the French influence on Mary's life. She was, she essentially was more French than she was Scottish, but we'll get into that. Mary was, Mary, Queen of Scots, was initially betrothed to Henry VIII, who was the King of England at the time, uh, son Edward in an attempt to uh, gain control of her, which, so, again, weird monarchy politics stuff. She was dis- she was a distant cousin of the Tudors, which is, you know, Henry VIII was a Tudor, Elizabeth was a Tudor. They, they ruled for quite a while. And so, essentially, they were like, hmm, okay, well, this person is a potential heir to my throne um, if, you know, my son doesn't survive, so let's go ahead and marry her off just to make sure she doesn't, you know, try to claim anything when she gets older. Um, but that didn't go over too well. <laughs> this is what's known in the history of Europe as the rough wooing, which is a creepy thing to call it. <laughs> um, <laughs> really creepy. Um, very creepy. And so, <clears throat> really quick history. Henry VIII really hated his first wife, um, who was uh, Catherine of Aragon, but Catholic England would not allow him to divorce her. But when he fell in love with Anne Boleyn, who ended up being his mistress and then second wife, uh, Homeboy decided it was a good idea to convert the entire nation to Protestantism and start a holy war just so he could legally stick his dick in his mistress. Oh my god. Um, Yeah. Don't you love men that, like, powerful men? They just do the crazy shit. So. <laughs> so gross. Uh, super gross. Um, Scotland was not a fan. <laughs> Scotland was like, no, we're Catholic. We're staying Catholic, as, you know, the rebellious spirit of the Scots uh, has proven over the, over many, many centuries. 
And uh, the betrothal between Mary and Edward was supposed to solve this problem, but uh, Mary of Guise, her mom, uh, was a staunch Catholic and very loyal to her French roots and devised a secret plot to smuggle Mary out of Scotland and betroth her to the, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, I believe the Dauphin, which is like the French word for prince of France, whose name was Francis. <laughs> Real original. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> this is how Mary ended up um, living in France for so long. And this is the story of her first marriage. So I apologize that there's probably gonna be a lot of politics in this uh, that I'm going to kind of zoom through. But uh, she arrived in France at the age of five and was brought up in the court of King Henry II of France and Catherine de Medicis, who of the famous Medici Italian powerful family that people have probably heard of. Mary lived a life of luxury. Um, she was really into hunting, which is super fucking cool, and dancing. And her formal education included learning Latin, Italian, Spanish, and some Greek. And in addition to the fact that she already spoke French and English. Um, so, bitch was a fucking polyglot, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, um... Like, I can't even fathom speak. I only speak two, and I can't even imagine learning a third no. one. Um, and she she was said to be tall and slender with red gold hair and amber eyes and had a profound interest in music and poetry. And I wrote, uh, yeah, because she's a manic pixie dream girl. I <laughs> love it. Um, <laughs> in 1558, at age 16, she married Francis, making her the Dauphine. I, again, probably mispronouncing that. The, uh, the princess of France. She was, you know, they were, they were kids, right? I mean, she's 16. I think he was 14. And she was very fond of him. She, you know, they, I think she really loved him. Um, and she was committed to this duty that they were, you know, going to unite the two kingdoms and all this stuff. Um, the marriage was, however, it was very political and it probably was never consummated, but the Guise family, her mother's family was a very, very powerful family in France. Um, and they kind of used their influence over Francis as, you know, he was their son-in-law essentially to gain power, uh, when he became king in 1559. He, however, was always kind of sickly. And unfortunately, very, very shortly after being crowned king of France, he died just two years after he and Mary were married. So she didn't really have anything left for her in France. And the, because the Guises were kind of her, her mother's family was sort of temporarily without any sort of power because they lost their puppet in the palace. So she <clears throat> returned to Scotland in 1561 to rule a country that she knew nothing about. <laughs> so she, this is kind of where her relationship with Elizabeth I and the Tudors starts to kind of pop off. So in 1558, um, backtracking a little bit, I just said 1561 is when, you know, Mary went back to Scotland and then 1558 is where we're backtracking to. I just like to put those bookends because sometimes those years all run mm -hmm. together. Elizabeth Tudor ascended the English throne as the hotly contested legitimate heir to her father. Remember, her mother, Anne Boleyn, was his second wife, who was recognized by the Protestant church, but not recognized by the Catholic church. 
So there's a lot of politics involved, but, you know, let's just say it started like another holy war that really never ended. (laughs) And so the Catholics, of course, because having lost all of his other legitimate children, guess who was next in line to the throne if you left out Elizabeth? Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, so the Catholics recognized her as a legitimate heir, and then the Protestants were like, no, 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 you know, Anne Boleyn was the second wife, legally married, Elizabeth's the heir. So obviously this kind of really didn't, it really rubbed Elizabeth the wrong way. She was not super (laughs) thrilled about this. She was pretty angry. (laughs) And it really, the, the claim that Mary was the legitimate heir was more her father-in-law, the King of France's idea, you know, back when he was alive, um, than it was hers. But, um, you know, he was, he was really stoked to be able to say, okay, we're going to rule France, Scotland, and England, (laughs) in addition to his already, you know, large influence in Italy, because he married a Medici, and, you know, he was just power hungry, and then he died, so that kind of left her high and dry. But having already made this claim, you know, she couldn't really go back on it. So, fast forward again, back to 1561, Mary returns to a newly Protestant Scotland, which, again, wasn't going over very well, Uh, but she found it pretty difficult to rule a country that she'd barely set foot in, like (laughs) you. Kind of makes sense. Uh, She kept her Catholic faith, like her mother, um, and the Scottish nobles really were not down for that. They were... They were like, you're a foreign queen with an alien religion. Um, However, and this is super progressive of her, Mary's official policy was one of religious tolerance, which was way ahead of her time. Um, So she actually did kind of okay for the first couple of years. But this begins a long cycle of Mary being used as a political pawn in these powerful men's games, right? So in 1565, a few years later, Mary fell madly in love and married her cousin, Henry Stuart, oh, Earl of Darnley. Yeah, th- shit was wild back then. They had no <laughs> idea about genetic disposition. Right. Um, and uh, so I, I'll refer to him as Darnley because that's what they call it. They, if you're an earl, you're referred to as the place that you're an earl of, I guess. Um, <clears throat> this was a terrible match, first of all, <laughs> because he was also related to the Tudors. So it co- contributed to the growing political issues, um, that she had with them. Um, it's a lot to go into, but suffice it to say, um, QE1 was pretty PO'd <laughs> that she married another Tudor. And, uh, Darnley was, he was said to be very handsome, but he also was extremely ruthless and very, very jealous. This is gross, but he had Mary's closest advisor, David Riccio, killed in front of her because he thought they were sleeping together. Wow. Which is fucking savage. Um, She began to fear for her own life, but nevertheless bore a son with Darnley, whom she named James VI of Scotland after her father. And don't forget that name because it will come up again. (laughs) Shortly after James's birth... Darnley died under mysterious circumstances. Um, the building, so he basically, he, he, he got ill, he fell ill, and the building he was recovering in was blown up. And when they found his body, they had found he'd been strangled while trying to escape. Dang. 
So there's no concrete evidence tying Mary to the crime, but um, it's no secret that she was not really, she wasn't really sad about her abusive ex dying and uh, had been looking into a way to divorce him for some time. But of course, being Catholic, that's, they're not really down with that. So, (laughs) which is like, there's so many like, there's so many deaths in history. I'm like, if you guys had just been okay with divorce, like nobody needed to die. Like you could have lived apart. It would have been fine. Yeah. 100%. Um, (laughs) So, um, before Darnley's death, it's apparent that Mary had started an affair with James Hepburn, fourth Earl of Bothwell. There's a lot of Earls. I don't actually know what an Earl is, but, but he happens to be the chief suspect in Darnley's death. And he supposedly abducted her following the suspicious event and, quote unquote, this is from the article I read, ravished her. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm assuming that means it was consensual. Yeah, I really I hope say. so. Um, <laughs> and they were married three months after the death of Mary's second husband, which, you know, not a great look. <laughs> so this really pissed off a lot of people. And she was getting, like, increasingly worse at managing her affairs in Scotland um, because, again, she's just a very passionate person and, like, she falls madly in love with these dudes and then wakes up the next day and goes, like, what the fuck have I done? So in 1567, Bothwell, her third husband, was exiled and she was formally deposed in favor of her son, James VI. However, she was able to flee Scotland and asked Elizabeth for refuge in England, which remember their cousins. However, Elizabeth was much more politically savvy than Mary. That was kind of her downfall. Elizabeth found a way to put her in prison. I think she kind of like said, oh, well, you may or may not have killed your husband, so we have to put you on trial before you can take refuge here. And Mary spent the last 18 years of her life imprisoned in England. What? Now, that's, that's not to say that the prisons were like, the poor, the poor people prisons. Like, she was probably, like, pretty well off. Um, but, yes, the last 18 years of her life, she was in prison in England. Um, she made several attempts to get out, whether by political force or by conspiracy. But at the end of the day, she was too much of a threat to Elizabeth's legitimacy as a ruler. Um, and in the end, it was Mary's desire for love that defeated her. Elizabeth always sort of put her own needs and desires second to her kingdom. But, you know, she famously said, you know, I'm married to England. Um, But Mary just really didn't feel that way. Like she really was not, you know, she was like, I'm going to live my life because I'm a a badass bitch and I deserve to like fuck whoever I want. (laughs) um, (laughs) And um, so Mary was abandoned by her country and even her own son, which is really fucking brutal. Because he, I mean, he knew he would be the natural heir to Elizabeth's legacy because she never had born children. But he did nothing to stop his mother's trial. Mary was executed in 1587 by guillotine at Fotheringhay Castle in England. How horrible. It's terrible. I actually, um, her, because you brought up um, Nora's last words, I had brought up her, her final words were, well, she had her prayers. She she took her, you know, she did her, her Catholic prayers. And then her prayers being, um, her prayers being done, she said, uh, I forgive you with all my heart. For now, I hope you shall make an end of all my troubles. Dang. And then 
they laid her crucifix upon the stool and <clears throat> and it was done. <laughs> oh my god. So that's it's it she has a tragic life, but it's she lived like a very full full life and Though he separated himself from his mother in life, James the Sixth eventually became James the First of England, King James of Bible fame, and um, ascended the throne once um, once Elizabeth passed away. He eventually had Mary's body laid to rest at Westminster Abbey, and he carried on the Stuart legacy. <clears throat> Mary's life was defined by men she trusted who used her for her own political gain but her life and legacy really lives on in the history of europe and she really lived life the way that she wanted to and i mean she suffered for it but she was like i'm i'm gonna live a full life because you know back then like you were really only guaranteed a couple years right (laughs) well yeah old age was like 30 for real But yeah, that's the story, the very abbreviated story of Mary Queen of Scots. I tried to spare some of the politics. That's so wild. I actually did not know her entire life story. I've I've read up on a few of the other women that you have talked about in in um, the story today, but I somehow mm. never like those that research never made my way to Mary Queen of Scots. But you know what? Like it's it, it's interesting. Um, just her story and how she died for, you know, love and I guess like banging it out with dudes. Um, (laughs) We are, my boyfriend and I have been like in this, I guess like quarantine long uh, Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime binge of watching old like Vikings and warrior movies. And it's so funny because they show both sides where you get to see the sides of like the heathens and the pagans and the people that like didn't believe in Jesus Christ, you know? And then you get to see Mm, the sides that did like the parts of England who were very, very, very um, like all of their rulings and their wars were Mm. in the name of God. And um, Mm -hmm. they do a great job of showing the, the two different sides and the ways that they lived their lives and, the rulings and the morals and you know it's just astonishing to me because as you know we've seen and heard in this story obviously religion plays a huge role in Mm. not only marriage but uh how wives behave and how they can be killed and tortured and like you know for you know whatever the 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 religion thinks is wrong but when you look at the other Mm -hmm. side of it the heathens, the pagans, like, women were banging that shit out, and <laughs> oh, yeah. they they were very rarely hung at the stake for it, and they'll even show, right. um, they'll even show uh, rulings and trials where, like, a, a man on the pagan side will say, oh, my wife cheated on me, she's been sleeping around, and, like, the queen <laughs> on the pagan side will, like, ask the woman, you know, like, is this true, have you been sleeping around, and the woman will be like, no, like, this guy's fucking crazy, and <laughs> And, like he is fucking crazy you know it's just like insecure dudes just like having a panic attack right. that, like another man looked at their wife but on the religious side that woman would be like her have her eyes burned like, out with fucking like oh, fire yeah. or it'd be some she'd like lose an arm or something and yet on the the heathen side the the queen will be like 
yeah i believe you lady like tell your husband to go fucking chill pill like get the fuck out of here like let's deal with like bigger fish to fry you know and so (laughs) it's just been really funny because um i've been i mean obviously this is all television it's not true to heart but it is really interesting (laughs) when you look at history um especially in the ways that religion has played a role not only in like uh relationship dynamics but in the ways that women had to conceal themselves or they had to hide uh, their true selves or they had to sneak around or they had to risk their lives really um Mm. and it's just so funny because you know at the end of the day when you compare mary queen of scots to queen elizabeth i'm sure queen elizabeth was not a happy woman like having to like live up to such uh standards all the time having to put your politics and your country before yourself every fucking time um having to jail your own cousin for 18 years and then guillotine her like people can't possibly be feeling good about themselves all in the name of fucking fucking religion and uh the court you know but someone like mary queen of scots I'm sure she she probably went down feeling like at least I lived my most organic, genuine self. And that's not that's Straight not up. something a lot of women could have said in that time period. No, absolutely. And like, of course, she had a lot of power and privilege that like allowed her to do that. But at the same time, it's like there was so many constraints that came with being royalty and like being like a pawn and all these people's games. And like, she really was just like, Nah, I'm going to do what I want, actually. (laughs) And I was going to say, I would highly recommend um, both Elizabeth the Golden Age, again, not entirely historically accurate, because they never actually met in real life. They, like, she was executed and she wasn't even there. Elizabeth the Golden Age, as well as the Mary Queen of Scots movie starring Saoirse Ronan and um, Margot Robbie. So good. Um, if, if anybody is like me who loves historical dramas, like those are, that's going to be your catnip. (laughs) Hell yeah. I'm so into it. It's so fun. And like, I've read, I literally, I have like a biography on, this is where I pulled, this is how obsessed I am with these two women. Like I, I have a biography that's the two, about the two of them. I think it's called Mary and Elizabeth Cousins Rivals Queens. I have like a whole biography on Elizabeth and her relationship with, this woman who like got pregnant in her court it's like a whole thing and like i just i find like 15 and 1600s like european politics to be absolutely fascinating (laughs) and i'm such a nerd about it (laughs) on that note have you watched the great on hulu no everyone tells me i have to watch it though and i am i have i've been in the middle of a lot of like things that i need to binge because i've been very busy during quarantine mm-hmm. ironically but yes no everyone's like the great is so good you have to watch it <laughs> yes it's so good we watched it a couple of months ago when it came out and i fucking loved it obviously i will be covering Catherine the great at some point on this podcast yes but it's hilarious because that specific story on hulu it has a lot of humor and irony in it um, and it's over dramatized. Mm. So <laughs> it's like, it's a right, story right. from like the 1700s or whatever. But 
some of the things they say and the way that they act are like reflective of, of 2020 and oh my so God. it's very like t- people today can kind of enjoy like looking at history in like a more modern way right but like still the costumes and the setting and the storyline is old but the personality types and the things that come out of their mouth are so on point with like the everyday person today that it really is quite yeah. humorous and um it's definitely over dramatized, but it was so good, and I'm obsessed with that story as well. Just who Catherine the Great was and how she ruled that kingdom. Um, really cool. I love learning about all of these women from these time periods. It's honestly just so fascinating. It really, really is. I love. I I was I was in a lot of period dramas in college when I was a theater major because I just have that sort of like I I I look normal and period dress for some reason I don't know everyone tells me that and so I was always in like the period dramas and like putting on like the hoop skirts or like the petticoats and the corsets and like all the weird undergarments and then the overgarments and how many layers of that there was like how did anybody move through life I like don't this no that's so nuts to me I I couldn't imagine living my life that way and like the corsets oh did you have to wear one of those I did I wore um there was actually one made for me that probably is still <laughs> at my school costume collection. Um, and I wore it in several different shows because a lot of times they would just have us wear um, like those kind of like bralette corset things that just have like regular bra fastens in the back. But there are certain costumes, like when you do like restoration pieces, it's kind of all about your boobs and you have to have like like very boosted <laughs> boobs. Right. And, like, Locked so- and loaded in your face? literally like torpedoes and so like (laughs) (laughs) so like I had to wear a real corset for a show that I was in where I played this sort of like restoration whorehouse mistress (laughs) like and it they made that corset for me and I wore it in a few other shows and it was so uncomfortable girl oh my god like I hadn't you Ugh, it's terrible. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. I mean, even when you see in the movies when they're, like, handmaiden or whoever the, the person is that's usually, like, putting their garments on, just, like, tight yeah. as fuck. They're, like, barely breathing. They're turning purple. Ugh, horrendous. Like, like that scene in Pirates of the Caribbean where she's like, try wearing a corset. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, I couldn't imagine. It would never be possible in today's day and age now that we all have, like, actual bodies. Oh <laughs> Right, that, and also, like, we don't have just, like, a, a palace full of servants to dress us every morning. No, like, oh my god. We don't just go downstairs and faint on a couch for the rest of the day. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's so funny. Oh my god, well, I love it. That was awesome. Mary Queen of Scots, y'all. Yay. Fuck yeah. I'm I'm honored to have talked about her as the 100th woman. Dude, how cool it's is so that? Cool. I love it's it. It's so cool, and it, it honestly, it just trips me out when I'm gonna just keep seeing that number increase and increase and increase like a hundred is huge and it it really is like I just feel really cool about it to think that I've not just me but I mean all the guests that I've had on the show since you know I've lost my co-host it's been really really awesome to just have 100 women well not 100 women but we've told stories of 100 women since this podcast has launched and I just love that so cool. all of those stories exist in my podcast and it, it's almost just like becoming a little 
biography of all these really cool women in the world and just watching that increase and different stories get added and I don't know I'm super excited about it so really cool I love it too I love it I'm I'm so excited for you and I'm happy for you and I'm proud of you it's awesome thank you for being here for number 100 yes girl thank you for having me of course that was so much fun obviously you and aubrey are my favorite and you guys are welcome to come on anytime and tell stories about your fave ladies it would actually be kind of cool if one day like both of you were on together and you like (gasps) split a story together or something like that that's actually a great idea because we we work in tandem so well (laughs) yeah that would be really cool so we should definitely do it one day yeah, for sure. Um, do you mind if I plug our yeah. <laughs> our, our Instagram? And Absolutely. Stuff? So we're on Instagram at ChicklitPod, C H I C K L I T P O D, and on Twitter as well at ChicklitPod. Um, and you can find us anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcasts. And I'm so excited that we're going to have you on soon. I know. I'm really, really stoked. So thank you so much for joining the show. I'm so happy both you and Aubrey have come on the podcast. And both of you, without any surprise, did fantastic jobs because you're obviously big readers and you love women (laughs) and you're just both kick-ass podcasters. So super excited. Thank you so much. And to everybody else, thank you again for listening. Episode 100 women. So excited about it. Really appreciate everybody who stuck around all these years. There's so much more to come. So don't go anywhere. And next week we have another everyday woman episode. And, um, until next time keep boozing up and empowering some special broads in your life because women kick ass (laughs) bye